Well, as we approach verse 17 in chapter 5 of Ephesians this morning, we come to what I think is likely one of the most frustrating, misunderstood, and misapplied truths of the Christian life for many. And that's knowing the will of God for your life. Not only is it the most frustrating for many Christians, but what is practiced by many in the church, considering God's will, is purely pagan and not Christian at all. In fact, if you were to survey the average congregation concerning the will of God for their life, how they discover or go about discovering the will of God for their life, and then how they pursue that will, what you'll find is that it's absolutely and utterly unbiblical. Our text this morning, verse 17, let me read from verse 15 to give us a little context. Paul says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This week, I watched what turned out to be a rather painful video clip of a pastor talking to his congregation about how he heard God's will for them in this new year, and then how God confirmed that. So first he sort of spun a tale about how God spoke to him directly concerning the will, concerning his will for the new year, something to do with an anchor. And then he talked about how weeks later, he and his wife and another family member were on vacation at a beach in a foreign country, and then he sees this 12-foot anchor right in front of him, and he says, that's it. God just spoke to me, saying the word for this year is anchor, and now there's a 12-foot anchor in front of me that must be the word of the Lord. And then he makes some clever statement about how God will always publicly and practically confirm what he said to you privately. Well, that's not the end of the story he's weaving on this megachurch platform. He then goes on to talk about how, you know what, after all, that one sign just wasn't enough. And so he needs God to confirm it again. And so he asked for a second sign. And so, sure enough, he finds exactly what he's looking for. He's out on the beach one day, and he sees another anchor, a beach decoration, in a place where you would find anchors as decorations all over the place. And he talks about how he turned to his wife and someone else and said, hey, have you seen that? And this is like, I don't, I, I don't know how many feet it was. It was like 30 feet or something. So he says, he turns to his wife, he's like, have you seen that all week? Has it been there all week? And you're thinking, no, no, they just, they just brought in a 30-foot anchor, you know, it's, it's not been there all week. Yeah, yeah, no, it's we, we've passed it every day and I just really haven't. Noticed it, and then all of a sudden today, after I've asked for a second sign from God, boom, it just hits me. And so he tells this story. And so he says, that was a clear sign that God was trying to get his attention. That the word anchor 
was God's will for their church in that year. There's another story, story that's very similar to his, where an explorer of sorts is getting ready to sail to a new land to discover new territories. And on the way, the story goes that the explorer, his horse trips, and he falls off, and he bruises his ankle somewhat severely. And so he takes this as a divine sign, and he says this, he says, It is not ordained that I should discover more countries than that which we now inhabit, and we should make no further attempt in company because he was reading the very clear, air quotes, sign. Well, both stories were identical in how they viewed circumstances as a sign that God was speaking. I told you the first story was of a modern-day pastor, but I didn't tell you who the second story was. The second story was the story of the Viking Leif Erikson. who was clearly not Christian. And yet they both read the signs the same way and came up with the same types of conclusions. So what's the link between those two stories? Well, we've just mentioned it. They're both pagan. Both stories are pagan in practice of reading signs. And that ought to make many of us cringe Because in reality, we've likely all done something like that in one form or another. Someone surely would immediately say, well, but doesn't God want to speak to His people? That's a great question. It's a valid question. And I would just say, beloved, that's really true. God does want to speak to His people. And God does speak to His people. In fact, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, we see, or sorry, says God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. In other words, God used to speak through prophets and dreams and visions and miracles and signs and wonders, but in these last days, He speaks to us through His Son. Where do we have the record of His Son's teaching? The Bible. God now speaks to us through the Scriptures. We don't have to read signs, thankfully. God gave us a book written in black and white. We can read that, and we should read that. But there are other pagan ways that many in the church use to confirm God's will. Lord, if you want me to have that job, just show me a billboard today with the word yes. Just let me see that billboard, nothing on it, just the word yes. Well, the same person passes a political lawn sign on the way to work, his current job. And that sign reads something like this, Tooley County School District Bond, vote yes. And he says, that's it. It says yes. God wants me to take that other job. 
Now, never mind that it's a lawn sign and not a billboard. Never mind that he was looking for something that just said yes and not for a county school board bond. None of that matters. Because we find the signs we want to see. He found exactly what he wanted to find, but that's paganism, not Christianity. A young man gets googly eyes for a girl and he says something like, Lord, if she's the one, then let her wear an orange dress to church this morning. Let her wear an orange dress to church this morning. Well, she walks in wearing a brown dress. And you know what happens? The young man says, well, you know, technically brown in the color scheme is actually considered dark orange. I don't know if you knew that or not. It, it is. It's considered dark orange, and it's made by combining red and yellow and black. See, she's got an orange dress on. That's paganism. It's also self-deceit. Vody Bauckham rightly identified the primary way Christians practice paganism, and this is going to hit some folks between the eyes probably. It's by using that little phrase... I have a peace about it. I just have a peace about it. I'm just at peace with what I think God is wanting me to do. It's sort of the notion that somehow God is secretly communicating to us and us alone giving us this miraculous peace about whatever the thing is. When in reality, that is nothing more than reading the tea leaves of your feelings. So what happens if you don't have peace about it? Does that mean that God must not want you to do that thing? As if our feelings were omnipotent, sovereign, and without error. Feelings are fickle, and we all know this to be true. We can think of a dozen times when our feelings didn't align with what we knew they should have. Beyond that, Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And then immediately someone says, but haven't we been given a new heart? Well, that's true. But you still struggle with sinful thoughts, don't you? We still struggle with sinful actions, don't we? And we will as long as we live in this world. So to decide something is God's will because we have a peace about it, is really just reading tea leaves. We're going to struggle with sin. Our hearts aren't made perfect yet. I mean, this is why Paul has been calling us in Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He's speaking to believers. You'll remember that Paul makes statements like, walk no longer as the Gentiles and Lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man. Put on the new man. And he continues the same theme through the rest of the epistle, teaching us how to live a holy life not dependent on our former lusts, our former life, and our feelings, but to depend on the Word of God. Paul wouldn't have written this epistle or many of his other ones if we could trust our feelings and our hearts. Not to mention that nowhere in the Bible does God tell us that we're to look for inner peace. And then we'll know that that's God's will for our life. I'll remind us all that Jesus said 
In Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's not always very peaceful, right? It's not always very peaceful. Speaking to the disciples in Matthew 10, 22 and 23, Jesus says this. He says, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Wait, that doesn't sound like they're always going to have inner peace, does it? No. But do you know who is a big proponent of inner peace? The Dalai Lama. That's right. Buddhism is the champion of finding inner peace. Listen to what the current and 14th Dalai Lama says about inner peace. He says, and I quote, The question of real, lasting world peace concerns human beings, so basic human feelings are also at its roots. Through inner peace, genuine world peace can be achieved. In this, the importance of individual responsibility is quite clear. An atmosphere of peace must first be created within ourselves then gradually expanded to include our families, our communities, and ultimately the whole planet. That's paganism. Straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So the idea of inner peace really has nothing to do with Christianity or how we as Christians should approach or gauge or judge what is the will of God for our lives. If you're a parent, God's will for your life is to train your child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That's not always peaceful. It's just not. And yet it's clearly God's written will. So we're still left with the problem of applying this scripture to our lives. I mean, the apostle does say that we are to understand God's will for our life. We are to understand the will of God for our life. So if we aren't supposed to read the tea leaves of our circumstances or engage in some sort of horoscope kind of faith, and if God isn't giving some Gnostic special revelation to people and we aren't engaging in the pagan practice of having peace about it, then how in the world are we supposed to know the will of God? Does the Scripture tell us how to know God's will for our lives? Or are we left to figure it out on our own? How do we as believers who trust in the authority, sufficiency, and inerrancy of Scripture come to discover exactly what is God's will for my life? And that's a very practical question. And since we're commanded to do that, we've got to answer it. And so I'm glad you've asked the question. But before we get there, there's something else that I think we need to talk about. We must understand how Scripture first speaks about God's will. And there are essentially three different ways Scripture understands the phrase, the will of God. I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we can talk about them individually. We see the decretive will of God, we see the perceptive will of God, and we see the permissive will of God. And those are all different. God's decretive will or His sovereign will, 
Sometimes we refer to it as the secret counsel of the Lord. This is the will of God that's hidden from us. As someone once so eloquently said, this is the part of God's will that's none of our business. It can't be thwarted, it can't be changed, it can't be manipulated or even known before it happens unless it's already been revealed to us through the pages of Scripture. The very first example we see of this will of God is in Genesis, when God said, let there be light, and there was light. It was God's will that light happen immediately and right then, and it did. And nothing in the universe could have stopped light from happening when God called it into existence. That is God's sovereign, decreed will. It was decreed that Christ would come and be crucified. There is nothing that could have stopped that. Praise God for our sakes. Let me give you another example of God's decreed will, the blind man in John chapter 9. You know the story. The disciples along with Jesus come up to this blind man and the disciples are engaging in Christ, and they're asking the question, well, Lord, why is this man blind? Whose sin caused him to be blind? Was it his own sin, or was it perhaps his parents' sin? And listen carefully to what Jesus says in response. In verse 3 of John chapter 9, he says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed the man, and God was glorified. God sovereignly decreed that that man would be born blind, not because of sin, but so that he might be healed, bringing glory to God. Nothing could have changed that man being born blind, and nothing could have stopped him from being healed. And no one knew that that was God's will until he revealed it. But this is the will that most people are trying to figure out. Most people want to know this will. Lord, when I'm sitting at that stoplight, do I go right or do I go left? Did I get the orange dress right? I mean, it's brown, so it's sort of orange. It must be God. Most people want to know the things that belong to God's secret counsel. Which is why many believers are constantly frustrated. If you misunderstand this, yes, you can be a Christian. We're not talking about issues of salvation, but you can live an entire Christian life and just be perpetually frustrated. God is not pleased to share His secret will, His decretive will with anyone. God's not a magic eight ball like many people want Him to be. And You know what I'm talking about, right? The little magic eight ball. You go into the toy store and you get this sort of little fortune-telling magic eight ball thing. You ask a question and you shake it up. Yeah, we've all done it, right? You shake it up and the little triangle pops up with yes, no, maybe, whatever. That's how people treat God. They say a little prayer sort of to shake God up a little, you know. 
getting ready for that yes or no, and then they sort of throw in the phrase, in Jesus' name, sort of like a magician, you know, before he pulls a rabbit out of his hat, says, hocus pocus, fish bones chocus. They, they use in Jesus' name sort of like that. And then they start looking for the sign. Where, where's the sign? I like snow. It's snowing where I am. God must be calling me to be a missionary there. Or whatever. Or they see a 30-foot anchor. Because God to them is just sort of like a magic eight ball that can be shaken up really nicely with the right prayer and the right magic phrase in Jesus' name. And then you get a sign. That's all pagan. God doesn't reveal His secret will. The second way we see God's will in Scripture is His preceptive will. Or, we also would call this the will of command. Now, this is a will of God we can know. Because the will of command is just what you would imagine. God makes known to us through His commandments and through the law that's given. So God's will of command, His perceptive will, is that we shouldn't steal. Because He tells us that, right? Thou shalt not steal. We know that we shouldn't murder because God has said, Thou shalt not murder. We know we shouldn't covet because God says not to covet. We know that we shouldn't lie because God says not to lie. Right? It's a little bit different than his decretive will because God's decretive will, which always comes to pass exactly like God desires it, his perceptive will can be disobeyed. God commands us not to lie, and yet we do. God commands us that we should live full of thankfulness, and yet we often grumble. God commands that we're not to be conformed to this world, but how often do we go the ways of the world instead of the ways of God's Word? His perceptive will is known through His commands, but they can be broken. But that's still the will of God. The last way that we see God's will in Scripture is what we would call the permissive will or the will of disposition. His permissive will or the will of disposition. In other words, this is God's attitude towards His creation and His creatures. So, for instance, when we read in 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, and as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, an Arminian would, would look at that and say, see, God doesn't actually elect some and not others. He wants everyone to be saved. They only have to choose. But the problem here is we're not speaking about God's decretive will. This is God's will of disposition. This is His attitude. God doesn't delight that any goes to hell. But this isn't His decretive will. It's His permissive will, His general attitude. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in sending anyone to hell, and yet, because He's a just God, He certainly does do it. God's decretive will 
concerning salvation is actually found in Ephesians chapter 1. We read that before. Verses 4 and 5, let me remind you, this is God's decretive will. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. That's God's decretive will. If you belong to Christ, it's because before the foundation of the world, God chose you. And nothing can undo that. Thank God. If God saved you, you can't lose your salvation. Thank God. But His permissive will is what we see in 1 Peter. Where as a state of an attitude, God says, I wish that none would perish. See the difference? The late R.C. Sproul uses a really an excellent analogy from our courts of law. He says this, and I quote, A judge, in the interest of justice, may sentence a criminal to prison and at the same time inwardly grieve for the guilty man. His disposition may be for the man, but against the crime. That's a really good analogy. So those are the three primary ways we see God working in Scripture, and we've got to know the difference when we're reading the text. And the text gives us the hints that we need. So let's go back to our passage now. 5, 15 through 17, focusing on 17. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if the expectation is that we are to understand the will of the Lord, then Paul could not possibly be speaking about God's decretive secret will. Couldn't possibly be talking about that. Because it's secret. We don't get to know the secret plans of God. And so we're left with God's preceptive will and God's permissive will. God's will of command and God's disposition towards His creatures and how He desires them to live. And we can know both of those. We can know both of those. So... These are what Paul must be referring to if we are told that we are to understand the will of God for our life. So now that we know that we're not looking for some secret hidden will of God, we can answer the question, how do we come to know God's will? I think this will be revolutionary for some. When Christians see how simple the answer is, this question. I think it would be like a light bulb sort of just went off in their minds. All the time Christians spend worrying and doubting and pacing back and forth in their living rooms with anxiety will sort of look silly when we hear the answer to the question, what is the will of God for my life? You ready for it? Why don't you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're in Ephesians, just turn three books to the right. And you'll end up in 1 Thessalonians. 
Or you can get one of these fancy Bibles with the tabs. You ready? Put your eyes on verse 3. Let's just read a few verses here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So you've got Christians running around like a chicken with his head cut off, looking for God's will for their life, and lo, behold, it's right there in the Bible, plain as day the whole time. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. But maybe that's not enough. Well, let's just look at the next chapter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How about another one? If you want, we can turn over to Romans quickly. Romans chapter 12. So, so far, it's God's will that we be sanctified. It's God's will that we rejoice and pray without ceasing and give thanks in everything. And here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we read, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What's the will of God? That you not be conformed to this world, but that you're renewed in your mind. How does this happen? By reading and studying and living in obedience to God's Word. So the will of God here in Romans is that you not be conformed to the world. And then he tells us, what does that will look like? Well, it looks like that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's God's will for our life. Okay, one more, one more. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. Now, we would imagine that if Jesus is going to pray for God the Father to do something, then that is a prayer that's going to get answered, right? We can agree on that. Jesus, who is also fully God on earth, if he's going to pray to God the Father and ask the Father to do something, you can be sure that that is the will of God and it's going to happen. Listen to what he prays here. Jesus prays to the Father concerning the disciples, and he says this. He says, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So you want to know what God's will is for your life? God's will is that you be sanctified. God's will is that you rejoice always, that you pray without ceasing, and that in everything you give thanks. God's will for your life is not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the Word. God's will is found in the prayer Jesus prays, that we would be sanctified. 
And so then I would just simply recommend, if that's not enough for someone, to get those down perfectly. And then worry about God's secret will. But that's God's will for us. Now, I understand going through that struggle. I was in a part of the church that very is very heavily paganistic in that way. Found myself looking for signs at one time in my life. And you know, my Christian life was always frustrated. So I have some sympathy and some empathy, but you can't get any clearer than opening God's Word and the text saying, this is the will of God for your life. And it's in multiple places. It's all right there in plain sight. And the fact that many Christians don't know that proves that many Christians just simply don't read their Bible. Because you can't get any clearer than this is God's will for you. Now some might think, okay, so I'm not privy to God's secret will, and I see that God's will is for my sanctification. I see that God doesn't want me to complain and grumble. I see that God wants me to live a a holy life. I, I get all of that, that I'm supposed to be conformed to Christ. But how does that help me make the decisions I need to make in my life? I mean, I need to decide where I'm going to live. I need to decide who I'm going to marry. I need to decide what job I'm going to take. I still have to make all those decisions. So how does it help me do that? That's a really good question. We needed to answer these other things before we get down to the application of the text for this morning. Paul has really been answering this question the whole time. The whole time we've been in this epistle, Paul's been teaching us how to answer these types of questions. In chapter 4, he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He tells us to walk in humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another. He tells us that we're to be equipped by the pastors and elders of the church so that we can grow up into all aspects of Christ. He tells us that we're to become mature in the faith, not being tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. He tells us not to walk like the Gentiles walk, to set aside the old self, to set aside anger and malice and falsehood and bitterness. He tells us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, In chapter 5, he tells us to be imitators of God, to walk in love, to set aside immorality, impurity, greed. He tells us to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And of course, all of these things are what's pleasing to the Lord. Not to participate in the deeds of darkness, not to walk as unwise men, but as wise to make the most of our time. And then he gets to our verse this morning, and he says, so then, right? In other words, in light of all that I've been telling you, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, if you strive to do all that Paul's been telling us up to this point, you will be in the will of God for your life. Now, how does that help me make decisions? Well, you can just strive for those things and know that as you make decisions, God will guide you. But let me 
to sort of simplify all of that into three actions so that you can know for sure God's will for whatever specific decision you need to make. And this isn't some theoretical theology that has no application. It's very practical. The first action is to pursue a sanctified life. Pursue a sanctified life. Pursue a holy life. What does that look like? It means that we're reading our Bible, that we're studying our Bible, and that we're seeking to obey it. If we pursue a holy life, we're living a life of prayer dedicated to studying God's Word, and then we aim to obey it. That's the first step. The second step, or the second action that we need to take when making decisions, specific decisions, is to seek wise counsel. To seek wise counsel. That means we go to other people who are praying and reading their Bible and striving to obey, and we tell them the situation or the choice that we have, and we consider that. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. This is how we make decisions. And then the last is that we pray for wisdom. So we make sure we're living a righteous life, pursuing God. Then we seek the counsel of others who are also pursuing a righteous life with God. And then we pray for wisdom. James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And that's it. That's the answer to the million-dollar question. How can I know God's will for my life? Well, the Scripture makes God's general will for our life clear, and when we need to know what to do in a specific situation, we simply apply what Scripture teaches. We live a holy life. We seek wise counsel, we pray for wisdom, and we make a decision. It's really that simple. So what job does God want you to take? Well, it, if you're living a holy life, and you're in the Word, then you know what pleases God and what doesn't please God. You don't have to ask the question, is working at this nefarious sort of job scene that you know is against God's will, you don't have to consider that because you know the Bible. You know what holiness is. You know what righteousness is. And sometimes we can eliminate choices just based on that. You know, if it's going to hinder your walk of sanctification, it's not God's will for your life. But you've got to know your Bible to know that. It's not going to impede your sanctification. Seek wise counsel from others. And then faithfully pray for wisdom. Continue to study. And then I'll just let you in on a little secret. God doesn't really care what job you take. He gives us the parameters. If it doesn't hinder your sanctification... If it isn't going to impede your walk with Christ, if the counselors in your life, the other godly men and women in your life see no issue with either job, then just pick the one you like the best, and that's it. And the application is the same for other decisions that we need to make. It's really that simple. 
And you know, people don't like that it's that simple because it doesn't sound very spiritual. But it doesn't sound very spiritual to most people because they spend no time in this book. And so they just don't know the answer to those questions. If you're working for a job that demands that you lie to customers, and there are some out there, then guess what? I No, that's not the will of God for your life. Why? Because, guess what? I know God's will of command. It says, thou shalt not lie. Because see how easy that was? Sometimes we've got to do a little more digging. Sometimes wise counselors, wise friends, see things, see things that we don't see. And we take that counsel, and then you think, oh, okay, you know what? That would actually probably hinder my marriage if I did that. So guess what? That's your primary ministry. The husband is meant to function in the home as the king and the priest. And if you can't do that, if you can't make that work, you know, if your job takes you off for 10 years, hey, honey, I'll see you in 10 years. We'll, we'll video chat. Uh-uh. I don't think so. But you got to know your Bible. It doesn't seem very spiritual, but the alternative is to engage in paganism. It's actually far more spiritual because you know what? It requires faith. It requires that you trust in God's Word who promises that He'll guide the paths of the righteous. So you living, striving to live a righteous life, you counsel with other believers, you make the best decision, and then you have to trust that God is going to lead you where He wants you to go. I don't know about you, but that's far more spiritual than shaking God like a little magic eight ball and looking for ridiculous signs. It requires the faith that says, Lord, I trust that as I live in such a way as to please you, that you'll guide my steps because I'm one of your children. Far more spiritual than treating God like the magic eight ball. It's having faith that God is a sovereign God and that you can't mess up His plans. If God wants you in Timbuktu, and that's His sovereign decreed will, you're going to get there. And if He doesn't, you won't. A lot of anxiety that believers experience come from this very issue. It's just way more simple and way more free. Live a holy life, seek godly counsel, pray, and just pick one. Eliminate the ones you need to, and whatever's left, pick the one you like the most. Listen to this. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. That sort of sounds like pursuing a holy life, right? And He will make your paths straight. Proverbs 16, 3. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Jeremiah the prophet says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself. 
nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. We trust God. We live a holy life. We make sure we have wise friends that are also trying to live a holy life. We pray for wisdom, and then we make a choice based on all those things. Paul draws a really interesting comparison here in the verse. He says, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, he's just finished telling us in verse 5, right, to walk as wise men. So it is the reality that those who are wise will understand God's word. And the foolish, on the contrary, will spend their lives never really understanding God's word. Because their life is being distracted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, rather than being led by the Spirit and the word. That's why it's so important, number one, that we pursue sanctification and holiness and righteousness. And God will give us what we need. So live a holy life. Read your Bible, pray, obey it, seek wise counsel, pray for wisdom, and have faith that God directs the paths of the righteous. Look, God's not sitting up in heaven wringing His hands, worried about you making the wrong decision and thwarting His grand scheme of things. God's not in heaven thinking, oh no, if... If Julie doesn't go to the right gas station today, I just don't know what I'm going to do because I had so many plans. God's not doing that. God is sovereign. We live a holy life. We seek wise counsel. We pray for wisdom. And we trust that God directs the paths of the righteous because he tells us he does. Let's pray.